on today's episode of Gathering the Kings. So many people, they, they, they make a lot of money for a number of years, and they feel like it's just never going to stop. They have the Midas touch. They, get, yeah. they spend on things, fancy cars, big vacations, and they just always feel like they can refill the coffers. But the reality is, is that the world is cyclical. There will be times of great prosperity, and there will be times where it's really challenging. And so think, save your money, think long-term, never think that good times won't end because they will. It's the perfect time right now. Having lived through 2008, not having the advice of older Steve, I had the fancy car. I had the nice house by the beach. I, I did all the things. And then 2008 hit and we got wallet. You are listening to Gathering the Kings with Chaz Wolf, featuring fellow seven, eight, and even nine figure business owners who have real battle scars from business and life, but have prevailed as the king that they are designed to be. We welcome high performing entrepreneurs to the stage in order to reveal the real of the real on what it takes to build a successful business today. We dissect the good and bad decisions they've made along the way that give a true and accurate picture of the journey of success and how you too can get there. Through this dialogue, you will learn the value of growing your network and surrounding yourself with power players and kings like today's guest. Grab your pen and notebook because we're about to dive in. What's up, everybody? I'm Chaz Wolf, Gathering the Kings podcast. Today, I've got Stephen Ludwig on the King stage. My brother, how you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm wonderful, man. We got this red background theme going on between the two of us here. We're clearly on the same page. Appreciate that. We got that. the memo. We got the memo. It's a beautiful thing. I was going to say, is it Red Monday because the Chiefs or... or... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, it's, I think it's the burial sign of my Patriots. Oh, yeah, that could be. You know, here in Kansas City, uh, people ask me, I'm a Chiefs fan. I'm like, well, it's the only thing that we have. So, yes. <laughs> well, the good news is, is I was in Kansas City for the Chiefs Raiders Monday night game. And I went down to what, the big sports store in town. Yeah. And I got him a Holmes jersey. And I go. wanted to participate at Arrowhead, be one of the one of the locals. Yeah. So now I brought it back with me and I feel like I can just throw it on, walk into any bar and still have something to cheer about. Be ready to go. Exactly. That's awesome. Well, we appreciate that from, from Kansas City to, to you. Thank you. <laughs> Steven, what kind of business, or in this case, businesses do you have, brother? So I was very fortunate, lucky. I took the leap of faith when I was in my mid-20s working for a real estate private equity firm in Los Angeles. One of those scenarios where I don't necessarily think I fit into the corporate culture. Sure. Was smart enough to be there, but just wasn't looking to climb the corporate ladder. And I met a gentleman while at this company who would come into pitch looking for private equity into a real estate investment. And when he asked me, what do I need? Am I going to get the money? I looked him straight in the eyes when I was 26 and said, no. And when he asked, why not? I said, well, your presentation just wasn't on point to raise this type of institutional equity. And he asked me, well, what do I need to do to get money from a company like yours? And I said, well, you need to do X, Y, and Z. To get there, you need to have an offering memorandum. You need to have a financial model. And yeah. he's looking at me with kind of hazy eyes. Deer in the headlights. And he, looked, and, he's, and he asked me, he said, well, could you do that for me if I paid you on the side? You want to do some moonlighting? And opportunistically, I, I looked at him and I said, I'm already working 100 hours a week to make a couple extra bucks. Isn't really worth the extra grind. Mm-hmm. However, 
if you want to give me a piece of the deal, make me an equity partner, I can always carve out a few more hours of my life. And so that's exactly what happened. And, and a couple months into this, uh, I was helping him raise equity when the firm I was at basically came to me and said, Steve, we really like you, but you just don't really fit in here perfectly. We got to <laughs> let you go. And I yeah. kind of turned around and handed him this like offering memorandum. I said, I totally understand. Do you want to invest $20 million in a real estate investment? And yeah. <laughs> the rest is history. I was out the door. Wow. Wow. With the investment or, or did, they, did, they, did they say get you down know, the road? Sadly, that investment fell through. And a couple, uh, a couple days after that happened, the guy that I was working with yeah. looked at me and said, and this is 20 years ago, he said, Steve, look, unfortunately, this fell apart. I like working with you. Uh, what do you say I pay you $3,000 a month for three months? And let's see if we can find another deal. And when you have your back against the wall like that, oh my gosh, you double down on your effort and work oh, yeah. even harder. So yeah. if I thought 100 hours a week was a lot of work, I crushed that. And I eventually found another deal. It was a $16 million investment in Sherman Oaks, California. It was an apartment building, 170 apartment units. Wow. And lo and behold, I was, it's, a, it's a great story, but was able to put the deal together as investment number one. And there's, there's a lot of details in that. When you're buying a $16 million building at 26 years old with no money in your pocket, right. you know, how, do you, how do you do that? And yeah. that's, that's really what I saw to kick off my entrepreneurial career. And how do you do that? I went online at the time the internet wasn't as prolific as it is now. Yeah. But there was a website that had a list of 300 private equity firms. And methodically, I called all 300. Wow. About halfway through that list, I think at like 156, a guy that I was speaking to who I thought would invest said, say, hey, kid, this sounds like a great investment but I don't think you have what it takes to make it happen. Ooh. So when you fall out of escrow, I'm going to buy it and hung up the phone on me. Wow. That, just me that just made me more motivated. It's oh, hundred percent. Like, don't punch the kid from Boston. He'll punch back. <laughs> so by the time I got to the 300, literally like the 300th person on the list, it was someone that, that I knew from my first job out of college in real estate investment banking in New York. He wow. had left. I had left. I left the private equity firm. He was at a private equity firm. He calls me and he says, hey, I got this offering memorandum on my desk. Is this the same Steve Ludwig that I shared cocktails with in New York when we were 22 years old? Uh, and I was like, oh, yes, it is. He's like, this <laughs> looks like an interesting real estate investment. He ran it up the, the flagpole at his company. Lo and behold, we needed, I think, like $6 million of equity. And their company put in 80, 85% of it. We needed the balance. I didn't have any money. My partner, he put in some money. He had some friends who put in money. I called my grandmother. She put in 25 <laughs> grand. I mean, we cobbled this thing together. We bought oh, yeah. it. And then really the, the rest is history. Since then, we've done almost a billion and a half of real estate acquisitions. Wow. Yeah, I, I, love the, I love the story. I think that the intensity of those moments, all entrepreneurs can relate to. And, and I know that you've spun other businesses out of all this too. So I, maybe those will come up as we just continue to talk. But my first question, my major question to all my guests is, is why? And so we were, we were just talking about kids before we jumped on the recording. You talked about some big numbers here. You walked into your office before we were talking there and said hello to a few folks. Why are you doing this? Why are you still doing it? So let's see here. I feel like I'm a young 46. And I was very fortunate as a kid. I grew up in a nice household divorced parents. So I would say emotionally challenging. 
but financially very stable. I went to private schools. I went to a private university. I went to summer camps. I had country club. I had the lifestyle of a kid that most people dream of. But then when I got out of like towards the end of college, my mom looked at me straight and she said, look, Steve, you've been very fortunate. My father was successful enough to pay for everything you've had, right? Everything. You've got no debt coming out of college, but I want you to know there's zero for you after that. Wow. And so she had kind of told me that through the college years. So even though I was at Emory University in business school, I always kind of had a work ethic. I didn't love class. And so I got internships and jobs throughout college in the real estate industry. And I really took to those. So as much as I struggled in the classroom to get a decent grade, I was quickly excelling in these different internships. And by the time I was a junior in college, I was eager to get into the workforce and start earning money and get out of the classroom. Yeah. And you know what? That, that, that desires really never stopped. I love work. I love, I'm passionate about different things and whatever I'm passionate about. Like there's no, there's no end in the energy. I'm passionate about family. I'm passionate. I still play lacrosse. I started a club lacrosse team and my friends are hanging back and licking their wounds from their college days. And I'm still out on the lacrosse field, smashing people every once in a while as a, <laughs> and having a lot of fun and all these big bruises and broken bones. And I will, everyone thinks I'm nuts, yeah. but you know, I marched to my own beat and the business world as an athlete, it's, it's, com- it's competition. And I love yeah. competition. Tell me no. And that just lights a fire. Me. Exactly. Absolutely. Do you feel like knowing those moments that you described, especially with your mom, like kind of preparing you for this, like, Hey, I hope that you don't turn out to be a spoiled brat because you got nothing coming <clears throat> type of a talk. Do you feel like that like changed the trajectory or were you, even if she hadn't said any of that, do you think that you'd be who you are? Like you were already that Steve. It was just, a, it just needed a moment. No, I was a pretty shy kid. I had a, okay. I had a, an older brother who incredibly smart, uh, outspoken. We'd be at family dinners and he would be wowing the table of like family friends as a teenager and, and everybody was enamored with him. And I was like the silent little brother sitting at the table, totally muffled. Uh, he actually left our household and went to live with my father in a different state. So yeah. I was growing up now more as a single child and my voice was yeah. starting to come out. Yeah. But I always found that excelling in sports, that was my comfort zone. It was really yeah. never about academics, but that competitive fire was intense. I worked hard. So it wasn't that I was a lazy person. I just, it, the, the light bulb hadn't gone off in the classroom, Yeah. but eventually it went off. Once, once you find what you like, something that really interests you, as we were talking about before, I could sit in science class and totally disinterested, no matter, no matter how much I needed a good grade, I just couldn't focus on it. Yeah. But if I went into a classroom where the topic was interesting, I did great. Yeah. And so then you go into the business world and you get to choose the things that you want to work on as right. an entrepreneur. So if you're choosing things that you really like to do, yeah. then you're going to have a lot of energy. But even like even within the different businesses that, that, that I've co-founded, but there are parts of the business that I don't really like. Yeah, and sure. so part of being a successful entrepreneur, I found is figuring out what you're really good at and what you're not really good at or what you like to focus on and do during the day versus what you don't. Yeah. The things that you don't like to do still have to get done. So you can either, for me, um, recognizing those characteristics of myself, you find people who are really good at those things. Yeah. And you delegate it. 
And that is then done what you can, what you couldn't do at a high level can then get done at a high level. And that helps your business prosper. Yeah. There's some people that like science. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) I do not like science. If I had to be, if I was a science, if I, if I like science and then I went to medical school, you would not want to be on my operating table. Yeah, exactly. It would be a bad outcome. That that's awesome. Oh, I think that just your journey is obviously very entrepreneurial. The way that you've described just your ability or lack of to focus is great. I think that we all have that capacity or at least flowing through us to a degree. It's just a matter of our awareness. And and then like what you said, what are we doing about it? Are we only focusing on the things that probably we're best at or are we trying to do too much, which it, it takes us to a place where we, we don't like what we're doing. We're overwhelmed, stressed out, like all the things that you probably felt in school, doing the things that maybe you didn't have as much engagement to, right? You know, even, even not only just school, but even when I found, I always knew I liked real estate. That's the only job I've ever had. I've had a lot, I had a lot of them early on, but um, my last stop at this private equity firm, I had a lot of self-doubt for the couple of years that I was there because I'm working for people. It's very corporate and competitive and backstabbing. Oh yeah, And I didn't, I didn't like that. And so there was a period of time where I was like, is real estate the job for me? I'm in Los Angeles. Should I be in the entertainment industry? Should I do something else? And it wasn't, it wasn't that it was the wrong industry. It was the wrong company. It was the wrong place for me. And then as soon as, as challenging as it was to go out on your own with no money in your pocket, I mean, there was a day where I remember I looked at the bank account and it was literally negative $250 in my Wells Fargo checking account. That was a bad day. Yeah. Soon thereafter, there was a there was a bit of fortune where I put a property into escrow, and fortuitously, I through an in, a mutual introduction, I met a gentleman, and he said, "Steve, what do you have going on?" And we're sitting down talking at a Starbucks, and I'm telling him about my properties, these yeah. three properties I have in escrow, and he goes, "Ooh, that one property, tell me more about it." And I start telling him about it, and he goes, "All right, I'm going to make you an offer. If you assign me the contract, I'll give you four hundred thousand dollars." I was like, internally, I'm like. <laughs> Holy shit. Right. Just you know, everything have, just blew but, up. Exactly. <laughs> but at this is the time when I had negative $250 in my bank account. He's like, I'll write you a check right now. And I was like, oh my gosh, like that's that's amazing. Now take it back a little bit. I started my company with this partner who I left, who was looking for help to institutionalize and find right. equity. At the time I was 27, he was 47. So yeah. the where I am now today, yeah, we had bought a property together, that first building, we had three more in escrow, the ones that I was sitting down discussing. He had literally just died in a car accident. He drove his Porsche, accidentally lost control, 650 feet over a cliff up in Big Sur, passed oh my away. Goodness. And so I was in a really tough period oh. where I'm sad. My business mentor has just passed. I have three deals in escrow. I've got a widow who is breathing down my throat. I've got no partner, don't really know which direction to go, no money in my bank accounts. And all of a sudden this guy comes over and I had a friend of my original partner, give me a $200,000 check to put a, one of these properties in escrow. And so, and he actually gave me the check while driving me to the funeral. He said, Steve, is there anything I can do to help you beyond driving you to the funeral? And I was like, I need a $200,000 check to put a deal in escrow. And he's like, well, your first business partner thought highly of you. Basically, here's a blank check. Make it happen. Wow. He had really no idea what I was using it for, but just implicit yeah. immediate trust. Based on so the person. We ha- it, it was incredible. And so I'm sitting at this 
coffee meeting. The guy says, tell me about this property. Tell him. He's like, I'm interested. I'll give you 400,000. In my mind, I'm like, wow, take this. But that's the inner, inner me on the exterior. I'm staying very calm. And I looked at him and I said, 400 would be a great offer. I can't accept that. If you had said 500, I probably would take the deal. And he goes, I, I can't do that. And he goes, but look, thanks for the coffee, shakes my hand, gets up to walk away. And I'm like, I'm an idiot. Holy <laughs> cow. And as he gets halfway down the block, he turns around and goes, hold on, Steve. And he comes back. He goes, give me a minute. And he comes back and he shakes my hand. And he goes, Steve, all right, you got a deal at 500,000. And I was like, really? And he goes, my word is my bond. Call my attorney. My real estate attorney is like, Steve, look, I've heard a thousand situations like this. They never work out. Don't get your hopes up. Right. All I can think about is $500,000 versus the negative balance of my checking yeah, account. Yeah. And so 10 days later, my attorney calls me after some legal paperwork and he goes, Steve, you're not going to believe it. I got $700,000 in my bank account, the $200,000 deposit plus the 700,000. What do you want me to do with it? Yeah. So he wires it to me. I, I call this guy that wrote me the check, Jerry, who was about a 50 year old guy. And I said, Hey, I'd like to meet you and your wife for dinner. So a couple of days later, we show up to dinner and I said, Jerry, I, I can't thank you enough for putting trust in me. Here's your $200,000 back. And I hand him the check and he goes, what, what happened? And then I hand him another check for 250,000, half the profits. Yeah. And I said, well, I flipped the property. This is 29 days later after he wrote me the check. Yeah. And I looked at him and I said, will you be my new partner? <laughs> and we're coming up now on 20 years that we've been business partners together. Wow. And so it's, uh, it was a special moment. I'm an incredibly loyal person. What he did for me was life-changing oh, and yeah. I'll never forget. I'll never forget yeah. it. Well, 29 days later, I think you made the best of that, that opportunity to not only return his money, but, but you doubled it more than doubled it. You know, in hindsight, in hindsight, if the world was different, I probably, the, the, I wasn't 26 and it wasn't a time of tragedy. I've probably been like, but here's your 200 and here's like another 20 grand on top. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And he would have been happy with that, I bet. Thrilled. He would have been thrilled. But you know what? He's this, this, Jerry's been a father figure, a mentor, business partner, a friend. Yeah, never have done, I would never have done anything differently. I'm, yeah. I'm blessed. Yeah. It, it, in all of that story, I think that what I picked up, what I would love to hear, what I would love to have the listener hear at a deeper level is you just, you just kept making moves, even though there was no money in the checking account, even though your business partner, you had this super tragic scenario, which like you said, you were sad, but like, I'm sure there was some deep stuff going on on the inside of you, but you, for whatever reason, this fortitude that you had just to keep going, to be able to do this deal on the way to the funeral be able to have the poise. Obviously you had done a bunch of work ahead of time to like lead yourself up to that moment where a guy would write you a blank check. I mean, right. Like you don't just auto auto automatically just get the trust of a guy like that. That was years of stuff that you had been doing with, with the other gentleman that, that led to that moment of trust. And so there's just a lot of things that you had been doing and that you kept doing even through the sticky. And so I just wanted to point that out to the listener that, yeah, maybe there were some fortunate moments as you talked about, but we all have those. They all come to us. It's just a matter of whether we had been doing the work and if we keep doing the work. Would you add anything to that? Yeah, look, I think I think reputation is everything. If you are known to be honest and right. ethical and moral in your business dealings, if you are known to work the hardest, not like right. putting good work, hard work, like the hardest worker, people take notice of that. 
And when someone's sitting at the dinner table with their buddies that, you know, it's like, Hey, I got this Ludwig kid. You wouldn't believe here we are. It's midnight. We're on our third bottle of wine. That kid will be in the office another three hours trying to find a new investment for us. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think a lot of it too, I mean, I, I go back, was I great in the classroom? No. Was I incredibly hardworking on the sports field? Yeah. If you were down by three goals going into the second half, did you give up? No. Did you maybe change your mentality and say, hey, what wasn't working the first half? You know, we got to change some things. And in the second half, let's go about it differently. We still have an opportunity to win this game. It ain't over. If they can score three goals and a half, so can we. I'm 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 an optimist and a realist. Yeah. Yeah. The realist has to put together the plan. The optimist can't float away in the hot air balloon. (laughs) We got to be able to do both. What would you say, kind of in that same vein there, what would you say is a characteristic trait that has led you to success? Something that you've held on to that you think is probably unanimous across the board that this is a characteristic trait or maybe a personality trait that you have that has led you to success? So I'm going to, I'm going to stick with the optimist and realist, but I like a, I like a challenge. I, I hate to put it in this light, but call it a little bit of the angry Bostonian in me. Okay. You push me into the corner and slap me around. Yeah. I'm not throwing in the towel. I'm coming back swinging and watch out. Cause when I, when I, when I come back swinging and and not, you know, not literally, but figuratively when I come out swinging, like I just, there's, there's just no loops. There's just no loops. And it doesn't mean you have to win in the first round or the second round. Maybe it's the 13th round, you know, but you keep fighting. You just can't give up. And if you fail, like you're going to get knocked down. You're, you're going to get knocked down and it's not, if you get knocked down, it's just how you get up. That's right. Yeah. What you just said, I think is so profound, obviously simple. We can all follow along with that, but it's the, it's the, the, I guess the, the fortitude, the, the, the keep at it, the, the willingness to fight, but beyond under that, what I heard you say, it was like this conviction of when I come back, watch out. Like when you come back, it's a done deal. Like I'm, I'm writing the story. It may not, maybe it's in the first, maybe it's in the second, maybe it's in the 13th round. I don't know, but I know that there will be victory. Right. That's right. Well, so it's interesting. It's funny. It just never stops. So, so start the real estate investment company. That was in 2002, 2008 hits and the real estate world implodes. We have a global financial crisis at the time. It was just myself and three other people in the office. And we had, we had a, I don't know, a dozen properties at this point. And what we realized was we had third-party property management. And those companies, as the world is imploding, you got to work harder than you were when times were good to get 70% of what you were getting when times were good. Right. With those outsourced management firms, they weren't working harder. So we yeah. felt like we were like slapping around somebody else's baby, trying to get them to behave, but they wouldn't. So we right. said, screw it. You know what? We're going to start our own property management company. And that's what we did. And today, I think we have 70 employees on the property management side. Wow. The next step was our, the general contractors that we were using to renovate the apartments and the buildings that we were buying. That's right. We just kept trying to push them harder and they just couldn't be pushed. So we said, you know what? Screw it. We're going to start our own general contracting company. Today, we have 35 people on the corporate side there, and we probably work with several hundred independent contractors out in the field daily and subcontractors renovating apartments. Yeah. Then the next step was every time we place an order with one of the big box retailers to get the building materials we needed for the renovations, they just weren't coming in on time. And we felt like we were getting 
core value in the materials that we were buying, janky yeah. faucets, it was. Yeah. So we started off making one type of building material, flooring. And then it was like, oh, let's, we can make cabinets and we can make stone and we can make faucets and sinks and tubs and toilets and wow. blah, blah, blah. So now we have a full-blown building materials company that's branded and being sold nationally. I think our clients include five of the top 25 apartment owners in the country, and it is booming right now. Wow. A couple of years ago, right before the pandemic, I was talking to a friend. He, has a, he was working for a lending platform. His lending platform was getting sold to a big bank. They were making first trustee loans to multifamily owners like me. Right. And I asked him, I said, you, you're going to go work for a big bank? And he said, no. And as we we're sitting there at that dinner, I was thinking to myself, for 20 years, I've been buying properties. But if I have, if I'm in a pinch and I can't go to a traditional lending institution and I need a short-term, fast-closing bridge loan, I don't even know who I would call. How is that yeah. possible after 20 years? So I looked at this yeah. guy and I said, hey, what if you and I start a, a lending platform together? And we did about six months later. And then we raised about $400 million of capital. And now my partner runs it day to day, but we have a, a full-blown lending platform. And then most recently, my 10-year-old son, he's playing lacrosse on a club lacrosse team. Unfortunately, the head coach and I met in a lacrosse game. He's 30, I'm 46. We met in a hard collision, which I got Ooh. the better of. Okay. And so when I show up to the lacrosse field with my son, he looks at me and he's like, oh, you're that jerk that cross-checked me in the face. And I'm like, no, that was just a hard, clean hit. But he actually took it pretty personally. Yeah. And he buried my son on the bench. And then most recently, he just kicked my son off the team. And he wrote a letter to my wife and I said, hey, it's nothing personal against your son. So it's personal against me. Right. So what am I doing? I'm like, screw this. Lacrosse team. <laughs> so I'm starting a kids lacrosse program right now. Yeah. Wow. I, I, my next question on my list was who inspires you, which I still want to ask you, but I think you've just inspired all of the listeners of it's, it's everything that an entrepreneur thinks that they're made for. It's well, what about this? And what about that? It's it's the ultimate ADD what we described, right? It's like, well, let me do this. Let me do that. Let me do this. Let me do that. The interesting piece about all that is you didn't just do it all at once, which this has been something for me as well in, in my story is that a lot of people look at me. I'm in different industries, got a lot of things going on. But similar to what you just said is that one thing, I did one thing very well. You did one thing very well. And then that led to the next kind of like, this makes sense. We add this on, we do this well. And then we yes. add this on, that makes sense. And so you didn't do all these things all at the same you, time. You can't, you can't. And even and even having your hands in, in multiple different buckets, so to speak, I can't, we've got five businesses and I'm going to call it six now with this lacrosse team. Yeah. You can't do them all. And my, my, my MO has always been surround yourself with great talent, right. not just employee talent, but partners. And so the different people running each one of the businesses each have very meaningful, oftentimes equal ownership stakes in the businesses that I do. Yeah. They're well-paid. They've got the same amount of upside that I have. So they're never looking over their shoulder, in, in my opinion, and I believe yeah. in theirs as well, and saying, hey, you know what? The compensation structure isn't fair. Steve's not in this business day to day. Screw him. It's never like right. that. It's, right. hey, you know what? I was given a great opportunity. To if it's a the, the compensation structure is fair and equal, I have ownership stake in the business. There's tremendous opportunity if we can make this thing grow, yeah. and that's that's just kind of been my the, yeah. You can't you can't do everything at once, exactly. but the people if you try to, you're going to fail. Right, a hundred percent. 
on that note of finding good people and or good partners, is there a formula? Is there an attitude? Is there a something that kind of like catches like first thought of you, like what you're looking for? That's a that's a great question because what my wife has been critical of me early on. She was critical of me early on because she said, "Steve, you keep hiring our friends," and I've had it. I've had times where it hasn't worked out, and it certainly sure. has impacted a friendship. Yeah, but at the end of the day we spend a lot of our time working. And if you're not working with people that you really like and trust, then work isn't fun. And if work's not fun, then it's a grind. And you're not going to put the energy and effort into it that is required to make it grow and be successful. So I also think that there's there's a big danger in it because I've always said that it's, it's really hard to work with your friends, but it's really easy to become friends with the people you work with. And okay. so that balance, right, yeah. is, is, is challenging. And you, you just, some of two of many of my partners, I'd say it's probably 50, 50. Some half my partners are friends who became partners and yeah. half my partners are, were employees who demonstrated incredible attributes and yeah. I wanted to be in a compensation structure to lock them down forever. Yeah. Yeah, so exactly. I, I, but I think oftentimes for me, so there's a, a commonality with the people that I want to work with and right. it's outgoing. It's some are more educated than others. So some have more street smarts than academia, sure. um, but all have an incredible drive. All have an athletic team oriented backgrounds. I'm really just drawn to athletes of all sorts. Because yeah. they have that that the unwillingness to quit mentality. Yeah. They have that 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 desire for victory like I do. Yeah. Yeah. I like the way you say that, the, the desire for victory. There's a lot of people I've talked about over the years. Some are motivated that they can't lose or don't want to lose. And then there's some that are motivated just to win. <clears throat> and there's a big difference between like loving to win and hating to lose. What would you say you are? I think I'm a hate to lose. Yeah. I think I hate to lose. I, I, I think about it all the time. Push me in the corner. Yep. Don't, don't do it. Don't yep. do it. And it's like, I, oftentimes, again, like I've said, I'm an incredibly loyal person. And so when I feel like I've been stabbed in the back, sure. the best and the worst of me that comes out, uh-huh. yep. some people would just say, Hey, Steve, take the high road, look the other way, move on. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, hell no. I now I'm have a new mission. Call, <laughs> I'm not going to call it revenge. I'm going to call it motivation. hundred percent. Well, that's exactly what's going to drive this new lacrosse team to be very successful. <laughs> it's going to be successful. Yeah. Hundred percent. I, I think you might you might end up stealing a couple a couple of coaches, maybe a couple of players. I never know. It's interesting. I, I might do that, but actually, it's not what I want to do. I sure. want to come in. I want to come in. I want to come in through an entirely different door. Yeah. And what's actually fascinating about lacrosse and what we're seeing right now is in San Diego, where I live, a lot the the club lacrosse scene kind of morphs in at the high school level to the to the scholastic lacrosse team, and so it's just this really political, terrible world. And I really want to step away from that. And part of it as well is that the club teams that feed into the high school teams, they're very expensive. So it's become a sport for the, you know, affluent. And I actually want to go the other way. I'm going to subsidize this lacrosse team. So that way we can bring people in who are athletic and it has nothing to do about money. If I've got to provide your equipment, your, your pay for everything, like I'll do it because I want to have athletes out there who have a desire to win. 
Yeah. Not the not the pampered kids with the silver spoon who say, I've got the best lacrosse equipment, so I'm I'm gonna be the best. I'm on the nicest team. We have the Chinese gear. Yeah. I kind of want not the bad news bears, but I want the scrappy team. Yeah. Yeah. Scrappy, I think is probably a good word. You've described this, put me in a corner. This is a scrappy approach, I think is I think I think that all that 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 fight in us, we have all that. It's just a matter of how it comes out when we when it comes out, and then more importantly, maybe how we use it. You said it's not necessarily out of a, like a negative vendetta. It's, it's no, it's motivation. It, it, th- that lacrosse thing has at this point, no longer to do with that guy at all. He just sets you in motion. Now you're like, That's all right. right, I'm taking over. That's the world. right. <laughs> I mean, look, you can take, you can take it back to the beginning. You know, in high school, I was six to 150 pounds with a, with a big schnoz. And everybody <laughs> was like, Hey, we're going to punch this kid in the nose. Yeah. And there wasn't much I was going to do about it in high school. But right. then in college, you start lifting, you got more time, you learn about maybe something like creatine, you start putting on some muscle. Right. And I got into Muay Thai and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And all of a sudden, it was like me waving my face in front of someone and being like, I'm going to give you the first three swings at me. Uh, and then we're going to settle the score. Yeah. Well, you you had a definitely a, a more balanced body structure. I was 6'3", 145 pounds. Um, and so tall, lanky. I still am a little bit, but man, you, like you said, I've been I've been using that creatine the last couple of years. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you look good. You look good. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. I, still, I literally still think about in college, they said to me, I, I, I pledge a fraternity and they have the intra-fraternity wrestling tournament where it's really just a bunch of college fraternity pledges going to kick the crap out of each other. And they wanted, I wanted to wrestle at 153 pounds. And they were like, we're sorry, Steve, you're just too small for the 153 pound weight class. I weigh 210 pounds right now. And so the body has evolved quite a bit. I try Uh to stay pretty fit like you, my friend. Yeah. But it's, you never lose that mentality of someone saying, you're just not, you're just not good enough. You're not tough enough. You're not big enough, strong enough. Like we're going to choose somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big deal. Okay, I got I got two questions that uh, will lead us to the end here, but they're kind of associated. So that's why I've kind of grouped them together for you specifically. I want to know of a, a character trait or a personality trait, an attribute we talked about, the good side. I want to know something that you have that maybe you didn't realize until recently, it unexpectedly held you back from more success. Something that you have in you that you've recognized recently, or even the last couple of years, maybe. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a great question. I think that the, I think it has to come with maturity. I think I was a a late bloomer in life. Okay. And so the, we talked about ADHD, we talked about the competitive fire. Yeah. That can lead you to be more emotional in your decision-making. Sure. And I think that as the years have gone by and you mature, you learn to tame that tiger a little bit. Yeah. And so in terms of a characteristic trait that held me back, that same fire and that desire probably led me to make rash decisions, even if it was in the moment in a conversation, business decision. And as you mature and grow older and things slow down for you, the common tranquility and ability to be more cerebral in all things and all actions, conversations, decision-making, whether it's, a business partner, I just settled up five years of a seven years of a bad business partnership Wow! that I went into, uh, could be a whole episode on decision-making and business structuring. Yeah. I was the non-majority owner of a real estate partnership on the other side of the country in New York. The wow. majority owner turned out to be a crook and a bad operator. And that led us to all kinds of litigation 
outside of the partnership, within the partnership, mm-hmm. and it finally settled. And early in that, I was so emotional. You know, again, this is six, seven years ago, so I'm not a young guy in my late 30s. And it really chewed, chewed me up internally. I mean, it made me angry. I was an angry person because of, I felt like that person was attacking me, like sure. you were doing this against me. And over the years, as it rolled by and I had matured and calmed down and slowed down yeah. in my thought process, it was, this person's not doing anything to me personally. It's who right. they are. Yeah. They just can't help themselves. And yeah. they're going to they're going to live in their own swamp. Yep. It has nothing to do with me. If it was somebody else, they'd do the same thing. So it's not personal against me. It's just who they are and they can't help themselves. So we're going to manage through the situation. We're going to resolve the issues. We'll battle through the litigation. I might have to sue this person to finalize things, but it's just what it is. It's business. And so no longer, a couple of years ago, I came to the resolution internally that I'm not going to let this upset me because it wasn't my fault. Yeah. And move on. And yeah. just hand, be a business person, handle it one step at a time, methodically get through it. Yeah, super encouraging what you just described, because there's a lot of what you've been through that several business owners have yet to be subjected to. And for you to be able to have not only just the vulnerability to share, like not only that it pissed you off, but that you felt like it was a personal attack against you. But I'm sure that there was like a rise that, that you put me in a corner. I'm come out swinging. Like, I'm sure there was a bunch of stuff there probably a affected your family it. as well. For 14 years, I prided myself and said, oh, we've never been in a lawsuit. And then I've gone through like five years of litigation now. And it's, I mean, it's cost me millions. It's yeah. cost me millions. So it's hard to process all that all the time. You're bleeding cash into the situation. Right. It's a big deal. Big it's deal. A big deal. It's a big it's deal. It's even a bigger learned, deal for you to say I've now learned, that it's poised. I've, I've learned more from this situation. You yeah. learn from your losses, not from your successes. That's right. That's right. That's right. So good. Like you said, we could probably take a whole a whole episode. Maybe oh, we'll have boy. you back for a whole episode on that. <laughs> <laughs> I got one last don't question own, here for you. Don't <laughs> own less than 51% of a business that you're signing loans on and that yeah. you can have liability on. Beware. Beware. Yeah. No, very good. There's there's lack of control in that and, and people can take advantage of that for sure. Even if it's a close friend, because people change. Yeah. People change. They do. They do. Or Or maybe, maybe along the way, things happened that just revealed who they really were. And you just hadn't had that opportunity to see that yet. I've had that happen. That's right. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to cap off the episode with this last question. I want to know, you could whisper in the younger Steve's ear. What would you say? That's a great, great, great question. I would say that the, the world is cyclical. And so when you have times of great success, so many people, so many people, because I didn't have anybody to tell me or teach me how to handle my money. Yeah. And so, so many people, they, they, they make a lot of money for a number of years and they feel like it's just never going to stop. They have the Midas touch. They get, yeah. they spend on things, fancy cars, big vacations, and they just always feel like they can refill the coffers. But yeah. the reality is, is that the world is cyclical. There will be times of great prosperity and there will be times where it's really challenging. And so think, save your money, think long-term, never think that good times won't end because they will. 
it's a perfect time right now. Having lived through 2008, not having the advice of older Steve, right. I, I had the fancy car. I had the nice house by the beach. I, I did all the things. And then 2008 hit and we got wallet. And then post-2008, we took a more conservative approach. May I have left some money on the table? I probably did. But here we are now in another transitioning time cyclic within the, for me, the real estate cycle. And because I was, because I had lived through 2008, we were relatively conservative over the last few years as things were getting frothy. So didn't have that experience in 2006, 2007, 2008. Yeah. had that knowledge and experience in 2019, 2021, 22. So when I'd say the, the change was interest rates spiking for right. me in the real estate world and everybody really facing some challenges right now, I'm in a pretty darn good position. I'm sleeping well at night. Yeah. Yeah. It's such good advice. And I think it's one of those things where we, we know and we heard you, but sometimes, most times, we hear those things and we don't we don't really take heed to them because we have to experience it for ourselves but if somebody wanted to take heed to what you just said what would what would you suggest that they do well now i mean again when when psych, when when the market changes you've already made your bets so if you were too far extended again depending upon what you're doing. But for me, let's just say talking to people in the real estate world, yeah. you bought a bunch of properties, you syndicated, you know, you're going to go through some pain and some capital calls. I would say the number one thing that you can do is to communicate your position to your investors. If you're going to lose money, don't bury your head in the sand. Let them know, hey, you know what? We all went in this together. Yeah. We thought it was a great business plan. You know, nobody forced you to invest or me to invest. Right. But it didn't turn out how we wanted. You're going to lose money. I'm going to lose money. But we're going to walk through this fire together. Yeah. And it doesn't and mean I'm a bad real estate investor. It just means that either we got unlucky, that we missed something in our business plan, but I'm going to fine tune it. And for the next go around, we're going to come back even stronger and smarter. Yeah. Just to echo your thoughts there. I've had other people on the show that have not sure the exact word, but they've been through something where either they were the investor and got communicated to like that. And then, like you said earlier in the show, that breeds loyalty because it's vulnerability, it's real. You're going to fix it and change it. And so most likely what you're doing actually is securing their next investment potentially. Yeah. Well, Um, we had, we had an investment in 2008 that went very South and it was in Arizona. Arizona was a different world than it is today. And we couldn't get, even though we thought we bought the property well, at a good price, we couldn't get people to the property that just weren't renters. And so in a hundred degree heat, I was out literally flyering cars in like low end strip centers looking for <laughs> renters. And while I wasn't telling anybody what I was doing, somehow the big private equity firm that was investing with us caught wind of it. And even to this day, what is it? Almost 15 years later, yeah. We still talk about food. We actually lost that property. It's one of two properties that I've lost of the hundreds that we bought. Wow. It's one of two properties that we lost to foreclosure, deed and move foreclosure. But they say, you know, Steve, everybody got pummeled in 2008. 
but you were one of the few guys that did something that really stood out to us. And that's the kind of operating partner who we want to be partners with. Right. What's the next deal you got? Let us yep. know. Yep. Yeah. There's that, there's that, uh, that willingness to fight, right? I'm not going to lose, right? I hate to lose. Like I'm, I'm going to go all the way down to the very end. <laughs> I'm going to put on, I'm going to put on to Arizona. I'm going to put on my pinstripe wool suit from New York city right. at hundred degree heat and flyer cars, hoping to get a, a renter. Exactly. Exactly. Steve, you've been absolutely incredible. How can the listener find you, whether they maybe want to do a deal with you or, or maybe they just need to find out where your products are so they can buy some, or they want to pick your brain as an entrepreneur. How can they find you? You can certainly find me on LinkedIn. That's the best place. Stephen Ludwig, our companies are Coastline Real Estate Advisors, Turnaround Solutions, Tussoro Products, Valeda Capital. Love it. We'll have links for and, all that. In the and show. if you have a kid who wants to play youth lacrosse, Hawks lacrosse program, go Hawks, baby. <laughs> I love it. Look, hey, there's there's uh, there's some high-performing lacrosse people all across the country. Hopefully they're listening here and they can tune, tune into you. But um, we wish you nothing but blessing uh, to all of your businesses, your family, kiddos that we talked about earlier. I just cannot thank you enough for being willing to share your time and uh, precious wisdom with us. So Steve, thank you for being here. This was great. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful new year. Thank you for listening to Gathering the Kings today. I hope that you were able to pull out a few nuggets to go apply into your business right away. More importantly, though, I hope that you're realizing that it takes more to be successful than just being by yourself, doing it all on your own, carrying the weight all by yourself. What I have realized, not only in my own journey from multiple businesses and multiple different industries, and now interviewing literally over two or 300 other very successful seven, eight, and nine-figure business owners, is that it's tough to do it alone. And so Gathering the Kings literally exists to bring together successful entrepreneurs. In fact, we are putting together one thousand kings specifically who are grateful but not done we're intentionally assembling kings who fight tooth and nail for their business family and communities and here's what we believe that in the pursuit of excellence in those areas that it ignites within us the responsibility to govern power and forge a lasting legacy so if that relates and and resonates with you and you know that you need people around you sharp qualified other very successful business owners, I want you to go to gatheringthekings.com. I want you to take a look at what we're doing and see if it makes sense for you to be part of our pursuit to 1,000 Kings. Talk soon.